I just got a little notification that GitHub code navigation is available. So I can click on function and method calls to jump to their definitions or references. That's very convenient. Yeah, I mean, my, my software is cool, too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just looking at your code, just looking. No, no, it's fine. That's fine. Really, what I, what I wanted you to do was go to GitHub and, and talk about their, their notifications. Sarah took your, your cool little project oh, and just did the, a complete took that thunder, it. <laughs> bundled it up and threw it right out the window. Hey, everybody. This week's episode is brought to you by Couchbase. Couchbase is an open source, NoSQL document and key value store database. It requires no external cache, supports SQL and analytic queries for JSON data, and Couchbase supports technologies like Kubernetes, Java, .NET, JavaScript, Go, and Python. Download it today at couchbase.com slash stackoverflow and let them know we sent you. Yeah, let's go. Look at us. Let's Here do we this. Go. So Sarah, Sarah, you're going to be recording this podcast on your phone because your MIDI driver crapped out. Yes. What is a driver? I mean, I get it. I know what a driver is. It's like, you got to install this driver because you want to use this new hardware. But like, what is a driver? I think you actually described it pretty well when you said it's a way to get your hardware to talk to other hardware. It just aligns like the different ports and the different utilities hardware needs to use in order to utilize your machine. Does that sound right to you, Paul? Yeah, because, I mean, your hardware sends little signals. The hardware on your computer interprets the signals. Like, think about your your Ethernet port, right? Like, it's boop, 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 boop. And it has to turn (laughs) that into something that can then turn into something else that can then turn into something else that looks like an email in front of you. Right. Right? (laughs) So So the mass spectrometer or the microphone or the gaming chair with you know, attached joystick it has a driver that this is the signals i'm sending you and this is what they mean that's right because the hardware is going to give you little signals it's going to be like oh hey uh, i got a beep boop 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 and, and <laughs> right. what do you want to do with it and your software <laughs> right. goes like oh beep boop boop right. boop, boop got it yeah yeah all right you guys talk about a software project for a second a dumpster just showed up at my house which i realized i ordered so i gotta go talk to the dumpster guy i'll be back in five <laughs> cool that's that's what's happening to me now too I, i'm getting a dumpster Sarah, how's software for you these days? Man, how's software for me? You know, I really, I've actually been trying to get involved in a lot more open source governance. So that's been really mm. neat stuff to see. But it sounds like you've been actually coding recently. Oh, well, first of all, let me just say God bless, because that is maybe the most thankless thing possible for a human being to do. Yeah, I don't know if it's thankless. Yeah. It seems kind of cool when you have like organization. Here's what it is. It, it lets what you're doing helps other people get their stuff done. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that is that's a very mature thing to do. Yeah, it lets things happen. That's exactly what it does. Yep. That's right. Because so many things uh, this is something that happens as you get older. You realize just how much the world is in conspiracy against anything happening. <laughs> like the world, no, let's not do it. No, no. And large orgs are the worst because they're the just worst. like, yeah, ooh, you're going to take money away from me and I, I need that money. Yeah, and open source you know, individuals is like bah. tough too because it's like no one is, in some situations people are getting paid, like people do do this for a living, you know, like some foundations oh, sure. have employees. But other times, like the ability of a stranger to come in and completely hijack something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, that's why the, the wave of code of conducts, which 
I know like a lot of archetypal old school nerds were rolling their eyes and were like, what? I know how to behave, but yeah. it's just... Hi, guys. Speaking of hey behavior, you sent me that old thing. I just wanted to interject. The dumpster guy said, I'll just leave it here. And I said, great, leave it there. <laughs> what? You sent me that thing from maybe the 90s or early 2000s. That was like that, like Linus Torvalds, like reserves his right to scream and berate anyone who's involved. Yeah, right? I'm sure. That's the classic example. Life is complicated, right? Because there's there are situations in which somebody running around waving their arms and yelling gets a certain outcome. Yeah. But those right. are bad. It's not sustainable in certain ways for certain communities. And like, you just, I don't know, we're just adults. It's complicated. So anyway, I, But I mean, isn't that is, kind of the core, the counter example where it's like, this one did really well. Like Linux did super well, even though the community was toxic for so long like how did it do so well if it yeah, was so you bad can't, you can't argue with the fact that like someone angry and dictatorial gets results like <laughs> yeah i mean that's like you know world history bears that out yeah steve got jobs it, is it, the jerk it. yeah there is I a mean, better I, way this is the one that i the one i wrestle with i'm curious what you think about sarah is like i know that it's very important to be very careful about how you spend other people's time, right? Like this is something as a, as a leader that I've learned a lot about and that people, and, and it's fine if people are focused on maintaining 40 hours a week of work, but there are some people who just want to work a lot yep. and they're, and it's very tricky because they're going to get ahead. There's no way around it. And it's not that like they just rack up the hours. It's they get more control and more flexibility working with the abstractions in our business. And they're able to move a lot more quickly and they kind of mm. win. Yeah. And it's it, so it's it's really tricky because I don't want to give people the advice to like, oh, nights and weekends. That's what you need to yeah. do. But the reality is that a lot of good careers are built in nights and weekends. And so. Right. Where's the humane balance, right? I think it's, right. it's like making sure that people who don't have the capacity, could be disability, could be family situation, to give 80 hours a week to something. That that's not the baseline. The baseline is like, come to work, get your stuff done. Yeah. This reminds uh, me of a very, one of my favorite Stack Overflow comments of all time was we were talking about something we were planning to do as a company, either with the community or build a feature or something like that. And the person said, well, you know, I'm a volunteer moderator or power user, but, you know, I, I work six days a week on this, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day in addition to my job. So I don't really see how your product roadmap makes sense, given that I need to work that hard just to do what I'm doing. And I thought, wait, what? Yeah. You're a volunteer and you do six days a week? What? That's you're not getting booty? Yeah, what? that's incredible. There's a very wide variety of human behavior and motivations. <laughs> yeah, but this is actually a, a great example of like a lot of what they're doing is open source work, right? Like they're doing, mm -hmm. they're moderating the content on Stack Overflow or Stack Exchange sites, and they're doing it in their free time, which is very similar to the work you do in open source. And Paul, the work that you're doing, building your own parser. And there's, it's interesting what will make people dedicate their extra time. It is true. It's real. You never know. You never know. And it, it's tough because people get really connected to things and really invested. And it's, it's actually very hard when you're working in an open source context or kind of a, a GitHub-y context, right? Because you don't know how invested they are and how much of their life this is. And it often kind of boils up in a mailing list. Yeah, it really does. And someone, I've seen people commit to things. Oh, man, that one of the more frustrating things is you know, people committing to things and then just disappearing. 
Oh, it's brutal. And I mean, look, you go to a job every day and you're paid for the job and you say, hey, are you going to get that done in three weeks? And you have to get it done because you want to continue your employment. And in this world, it's like, yeah, absolutely. I commit. And then you disappear and there's kind of no consequence except that, nor should there be. It's all volunteer. But then there's this endless guilt and shame cycle and finger pointing that can kick off. Yes. And what that showcases, if you look at it, it's that culture of accountability isn't really there and like people aren't making promises they can keep. That's a problem with the culture, but it's hard. Let me ask you a question. So like in these open source environments, like, right, do you build up some seniority and some ability to interact with or push changes or do stuff that comes with having done things and been committed, right? Not just walking away, leaving a project undone. Like, for example, with Stack Overflow, first you're a user, then a power user, then a moderator, then maybe, you know, you graduate to being a full-time, you know, community manager or, you know, CM or whatever. Does that happen in open source? Are there like these gradations, these tiers of access and privilege that come with having shown consistent contribution? Yes. Yeah, but it's more like it's more like culture where there's 8 million different ways that, you know, I'm the CEO of a company, but Stack also has a CEO and we're very different people who run very different companies, yes. right? Like and it's you're looking at like a whole world where yes, there are some people who have like mystical imaginary open source cred points that somehow everybody knows about. And then there are people who just kind of keep showing up and moving things along and nobody knows who they are. I mean, it's just, it's a very weird world that way where there's no, and then people, there's badges and tokens and who has the most commits. Yeah, similar to Stack Overflow. So Sarah, you said you're getting more involved in open source governance. Where are you doing this? And can you give us some examples maybe of things that you think are, you know, good examples? Like this is what we're trying to follow. We're trying to be like this project. Yeah. So I am a board member of the .NET Foundation and I am the chair. Yeah, great. That was a great sound of it. (laughs) I am the chair of our outreach group. So our outreach group is, our mission is to help meetup organizers and help introduce new coders to the framework. And so that's been something that's been taking up a bunch of my time. We're doing a lot of work right now around supporting remote meetups. And the .NET Foundation is a relatively new open source foundation. And so we're still figuring out the basics of governance. And I'm also becoming, I'm also learning and kind of dipping my toe in the OpenJS Foundation. And I've been sitting in on their meetings and learning about the things they're working on. And the OpenJS Foundation has a much more mature model because it is part of the Linux Foundation, which is actually the parent foundation for a lot of different open source boards. Yeah, that thing is a behemoth. Yeah. Like there are there are so many cloud and language and so many projects un- that sort of fall under the Linux Foundation umbrella. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. And a lot of my work is around enabling other people to be able to do things or following up making sure things have kicked off, making sure people can easily get involved, you know, figure out quickly how to contribute. Things like that Mm. are the things that I focus on. So, but just to go back to this for a second, I mean, I, you know, I'm not as familiar with the history as you are, but you're saying the Linux foundation is in some ways like the, the granddaddy of all of these things and other ones have are offshoots of that or learned from that or grew out of that. But the Linux foundation is one of the ones with kind of this with a, with, a, with a governance structure that has come under criticism, let's say, over time. 
It has, but it's also learned a lot, right, Paul? Would you say? Yeah, yeah. Le- and less the foundation and more like specific actors. Yeah, okay. I think in general the foundation has a rep as being relatively reactive to to its community. Yeah, I think that's right. Gotcha. So there were some major contributors, governors of sorts, who publicly, you know, were you know their behavior was called into question. It, you know, obviously effective, but perhaps not humane. But overall, the foundation is bigger than that one person and has evolved and obviously continues to thrive with many contributors. I mean, you're looking at a very tricky thing in in tech culture, which is that up until about 10 years ago, the charismatic asshole was seen as the great leader because it's so chaotic and so hard to ship software that that was a personality type that was effective, just straight up. Like a a slightly monstrous human being (laughs) who told everyone to go to hell and got it done all the time. And that you can't argue like literally the marketplace rewarded that behavior. Like not it wasn't just like, oh, boy, you know, we were a pathological thing. It's there's a million things. And one of the ways to motivate and and make teams work, run things well is through fear and intimidation. And it works. Yeah. So. Then, our, you know, the culture changed. And it's not just a, everybody wanted to get really upset about wokeness or whatever, but it's just like the culture changed. Like we didn't, it became ridiculous how incredibly separate the world of tech was from the larger world. And unless you believe like that guy at Google that there's just something inherent in coding that is on, that only a man's brain can do, it just like the... The reality of the industry versus the way that the world looks and the scale of the industry. Like, you know, ben, if you if you ever wanted to really see this in action, there's a talk called. It's it was a great talk. I got to see it in person. It's called Cascading Shit Show. And <laughs> Sarah, you've mentioned this before, and I've had to bleep it before, so we're bleeping it again. Okay. <laughs> you just really need to, because it's just ridiculous. Like it was just a bunch of people on. Um, listservs deciding ridiculous things and are I mean like and all of it happened over argument it's just constant argument well I, I guess one interesting thing is I mean software isn't old enough you know as a discipline and an industry maybe to have gone through the cycles but you know in politics obviously you go through these cycles where it's like right now we need the you know war chief grade a sociopath leader that works for a while and people are like wait this is terrible we need you know, the humane, you know, society focused democratic socialist. And then people come back and they're like, no, wait, we want the dictator again. So this is how people (laughs) we I I spoke not too long ago to a former Microsoft engineer. And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, that that's what Satya Nadella is. Like we needed the non-dictator, non-like-yelly, screamy guy, but then there'll be a point. The only thing that's tricky with that is that Satya Nadella presided over probably the greatest capital expansion of a company, you know, one of the greatest in history. Yeah, it's true. Same with Tim. Tim Cook is the Tim Cook is the yeah. It's definitely the, the kinder, gentler jobs, right? I mean, he's like, look. I mean, these guys are not. These are guys who think about supply chains and systems and who's where and how you move things around. And, and I think they are really, they're really into it. And right. they they want to solve these sort of big cultural problems with their companies. And they're they're ultimately relatively empathetic human beings as far as giant super CEOs go, especially when that class of human being tends to be a disaster. All right. So here's the hard question. I'll put this I'll put this to Paul and to Sarah and you can tell what you think. Those second tier, uh, second wave, the the successor CEOs can be kinder and gentler, but can you be the founder of a trillion dollar company if you're not a grade A sociopath? 
I mean, maybe that's what it takes to, to be, oh, you yeah, know. yeah, historically, there's lots of evidence. No, I mean, like, is there? I, like George this is a question Eastman I have. Kodak. No, no, trillion, trillion, trillion. Okay. George I mean, Eastman. historically, right? Like, yeah, Rockefeller was quite a piece of work. But like George Eastman of Kodak, there are lots of stories of people I mean, who, Thomas Edison was like uh, criminally competitive, right? He yeah, was like he electrocuting been, elephants, you know, to, 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 to shut down Tesla. He was banana cakes. He was of that profile, <laughs> but he was, he was complicated too. I mean, you know, look, I, what you're asking is like, do you have to be a complete raging narcissist in every way? No, you have to like, you have to strike lightning and then you have to be really serious about your business. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you can do those two things, which, you know, right. probably a few thousand human beings get to do over the course of a thousand years, you can win. But now it's... But granted, does a certain sociopathic narcissism and a willingness to scream at people, you know, while you consolidate your power, has that proved to be an effective strategy in the past? Yes, although it does fall down. Like, those people die weirdly alone. Yes. Right? All right, Sarah. Sarah, I want your take on the grand scope of it, and then maybe we'll, we'll scope it back down to the software industry or your personal experience. The grand scope of sociopaths? I mean, like, we just got way out to, hey, if you're founding a nation or a business, you know, it helps to be a grade A sociopath. There's a few, exe- you know, a few outliers. But in your, in your sort of experience in the software industry, have you been at companies where the people, like you said, you know, you sort of lived through an era where a lot of people thought the grade A sociopath was the right way to be the yeah. boss. And that was a, an effective strategy. But have you been at places, Stack Overflow or other places or .NET, where like people were good, nice, kind, I think that's the industry now. The kind of governance now. you'd want to do, and they succeeded. That's the industry now. Yeah, right. that's the industry. Yeah. It's completely different. Like, the industry now is completely different than it was, right? Like, if there's an open source project where someone's being a jerk, that person's called out fairly quickly. It's a very mm-hmm. different community, developer community, than it was 10 years ago. Right. The dev.2s of the world are on the rise yeah, and just more collaborative open source. Like people are willing to enforce a code of conduct. If someone's being a jerk, they get called out pretty quickly. I mean, there's still isolated incidents, but no one wants to participate right. anymore on projects that, you know, have jerks. We're going to, as a culture, this isn't going to get resolved. It's not going to get fixed on Twitter. Like, you know, what's going to happen 10 or 15 years from now is ideally a complete narcissistic sociopath of any gender or identity. <laughs> Or, or, or species, uh, or, yeah. Or let's species, not, or, you know, yeah. no, like any makeup possible. No, like anybody who yeah. wants to be a narcissistic sociopath should have that right to make everyone else miserable around them, right? Like that's been a problem. But like, look, these behaviors are effective and have been effective throughout human history and they're not going to go away. So, you know, what is your, like I read about Steve Jobs and I'm like, wow, what a fascinating guy. Thank Baby God, I never worked for that guy. I don't ever, because, you know, I'm a vulnerable human being who can be demolished like the next person. That that really seems t- awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? And then you'd be, and yeah. he'd, I, I would hate my Mac as a result. Paul, how's your personal project going? How's your uh, parsing? Oh, I've been doing good. I've been work. I released it. If you go to github.com slash postlight slash account. You'll find it. It's a little storytelling tool that has sliders, so you can do very basic math inside of a, a quick markup language, which means, because I do all these spreadsheets where I'm trying to like figure out the business model of my client so that I can mm-hmm. understand what the hell's going on and what they're building and why. And so this is a way to do that so that you can move the little sliders and see things happen. And uh, right. it's been fun. Cool. I, I promised that I wouldn't say this last time because I had to ask a question at the beginning 
about like what is parsing or whatever. This time we talked about drivers. So no more noob Ben, but what would be fun would be to have somebody come on the show one time when we have a thing like the GitHub thing and just be like, how did you make this? Because I noticed as we were talking, I opened up Gmail and obviously they're looking over their shoulder at Zoom and now you can just start a meeting or join a meeting right in Gmail. And I know that even though that's like a little thing, that probably took so many executives to sign off on and so many designers and developers to like get to this little thing, right? Yeah, also not a little thing probably. No. Maybe not a little thing. A beast. So how do you like react, Paul? I'm looking at your looking at your stuff. I am you know, I've always had mixed feelings because the you know, the web is a document deployment framework that has been jury-rigged into an application delivery framework yes. and probably one of the most successful ever, right? And so, yes, or if not the, you know, so I think that it's gotten to a place for a long time. I found it really confusing because you had this kind of class-based JavaScript model and then you had the virtual DOM that was updating and then you had state. So it felt like it was like, hey, we took some functional programming and we took some small talk and I, I think we've got it all right. And, and you're going to, it's like a lot like JavaScript, a little like HTML, with the templating language. And it just felt like the pieces never fit together, but I hadn't been back in in about a year or two and I got back in and the way that they have refactored the whole thing is good. Like it's just state is now better managed. Everything is clearly a function. Contexts mean I don't need all of the uh, weird state management, state machine kind of stuff that you used to use Redux for at least not for smaller projects. And so I have to say, as far as its view of the world goes, which is that a web page is an application where zillions of components are reading from dynamically updated state and that you modify that state according to a set of rules, but it, it just feels pretty good. I'm like, all right, I can I can work with this. I get it. It's starting to line up with the old web in my brain and, and uh, it feels like more of a piece of the web than this weird layer on top of it. So That's I'm nice. going to give it, I got to give it um, endorsement number 250 billion <laughs> for React. <laughs> cosine, cosine. React is great. I never used it, but I heard it's great. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> heard it here first. <laughs> Okay, y'all, uh, you want to do a lifeboat and we'll sign off now because we're going to do this again tomorrow morning. So, you know, yep. need, need a little downtime. All right. It'll be a brief refractory period. Here we go. Let's lifeboat it up. We are over a thousand. We needed to celebrate that. Woohoo! Awarded four hours ago to Skolitus. S-C-O-L-Y-T-S. How would you pronounce that? Skolitus. 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 <laughs> Awarded four hours ago to Skolitus. C-struct initialization with Char array. The struct initialization with char. Char. Or car. Do you say car or char? We've, we've been down this Paul says to char. Okay. Char. <laughs> char. He, like he a, like a the, Klingon. The invisible T, he pronounces. So thank you so much to Scoliitis or Scolitus for the lifeboat. You saved a question. You saved some knowledge. We appreciate it. Thanks to my co-host, Paul and Sarah, for being amazing human beings who actually know about software. I'm Ben Popper, director of content here at Stack Overflow. And this has been your podcast of the week. And I'm Sarah J. Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. Thank you. I'm Paul Ford, co-founder of Postslate, a digital product studio. I'm F-Train on Twitter. Thanks. Thanks.